All right, good morning, church family. Uh, let me invite you all to find your seat. And as you uh, find your seat, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Uh, we've been going through Mark for several months now, and we are halfway. Uh, we've made it through halfway. Uh, there's 16 chapters. I, I don't know how much of chapter 16 I will do. We'll get there. But um, this morning we are starting a new chapter, a new story uh, in Mark 9. The title of the sermon this morning is Jesus Leads Us to His Glory. So let's read the text, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. You will pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we get to a story that is, is quite unique, and that I confess, God, um, sometimes I, I question... Um, how are we to, to apply this to our lives? Um, I pray, Lord, that this morning you would provide application, even that goes well beyond what I uh, give the church, that, uh, that all of us here um, would find uh, application from your word that, and to remember that all of it is profitable. All of it is profitable for teaching and correction and reproof and for training and righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. Um, so this morning, Lord, would you equip us would you teach us about this story of Jesus being transfigured and what you want us to learn? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we've made it halfway through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we get to a story that is unlike any other in the Gospels. Most of the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus either teaching the crowds or healing the crowds. But this morning, we are given a window into a unique event in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's unlike any other story in the Gospels. And so this morning, we're going to look at an exposition of the text and how, how can we understand this. And then I'll give application at the end of that. And then we will take the Lord's Supper. So let's start with our exposition of the text, starting in verse 1 where Mark writes and where Jesus says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this is truly a puzzling verse to say the least. What does Jesus mean by this statement? Three questions are in order. Number one, who is the some standing here? He says there are some standing here. Who is the some? This either refers to some of the disciples or some of the crowds. 
Now, I think it most likely refers to the crowds because we know that at least 11, that, that all 11 of the disciples besides Judas did see this. And so I think it probably refers to the crowds here. Number two, what does he mean will not taste death? What does that mean? Well, that's simply a Semitic way of saying die. There are some here who will not die until something happens. And then number three, when does the kingdom come with power? This is debatable, but I believe that this is most likely a reference to the kingdom after Jesus rose from the dead. That when Jesus rises from the dead, the kingdom comes with power. So what Jesus is saying in verse one is this. Some in this crowd will not die before they see me rise from the dead ushering in the kingdom of God with power. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying that you, you know, because he has just talked about losing your life and denying your cross and and, and perhaps they maybe misunderstood what that would mean. Are we going to be crucified as well now? And Jesus is saying, well, some of you will be, but not until you at first see me rise from the dead, ushering in the kingdom of God with power. Look at verse two to three. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So Mark tells us a very specific time frame. He says six days after probably Peter's confession of Christ, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, if you remember when Jesus ministered, he ministered in concentric circles. There were the, the, the outer band was the, the, the crowds, the 10 to 15,000 people who, who came to Jesus to, to be healed, to, 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 to hear his teaching, to be fed. Then there was the broader group of disciples, the next band, which was the 70 or so when he sent out the 70 disciples. Then there was the, the inner group, which was the 12, the 12 apostles. And then there was the inner, another ring of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Jesus takes this inner three. The other nine do not come up the mountain, only these three. He takes them up the mountain by themselves. And I want to draw your attention to this word led. Mark writes, Jesus led them up the mountain. That's important because it means there's an intentionality on Jesus's part here. He wants the disciples to see something. He intentionally leads them up the mountain to see the view, but not the view they are expecting. Mark writes, and he was transfigured before them. Now, what does that mean? That's not a word we use. I think almost in any context, transfigured. What does that word mean? The Greek word here is metamorpho. Metamorpho. You can guess what word we get from that. Metamorphosis. It can mean to change in a manner visible to others. Just as you know, you see like a caterpillar turned to a butterfly. It is a change that is visible to us. It can also mean to change inwardly in a fundamental character or condition to be changed or be transformed inwardly. Now, when this word metamorpho in the New Testament is used of Jesus, in this context, it means the first definition, to change in a manner visible to others. When it's used of us, it means the second definition, to have an inward change, because Jesus was not inwardly changed here. This was an outward manifestation of him. Now, Mark, what what was that outward manifestation? What was that visible transformation that he went? Mark gives us one detail. Mark says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, it it, it doesn't have bleach in the Greek here. Uh, I don't know why the ESV translates that word bleach. But literally, no launderer on earth could whiten them. He's saying that you you would have these people who would be professional launderers. And he's saying no launderer could get these clothes whiter than, uh, than, than what Jesus' clothes appeared here. Now, Matthew gives us one more detail. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. Shone like the sun, which, I mean, you know, we see the sun at 93 million miles. I can only imagine what this face 
three feet from them looked like. The verb here is passive. Did you notice that? He was, he did not transfigure himself. He was transfigured, which means the father is doing this to the son. The father is transfiguring his son. It is not an inward nature that has changed. Do not read this as Jesus is transformed the way that you and I are transformed. Jesus' nature was not transformed. His outward manifestation was changed. Uh, one of the questions you know, that we might have is, what was the purpose of this? Like, why did Jesus do Why did the Father want Jesus to do this? Why did Jesus go through with this? Why did God the Father transfigure Jesus? I think that God is pulling back the curtain and showing these three disciples his son's glory. In other words, when Jesus normally walked around on earth, he looked nothing more, he looked like nothing more than just a lowly carpenter from Nazareth. People saw him, they saw just another Jew, another lowly carpenter from despised Nazareth. That's what they saw. But on this mountain, even if only for a brief moment, God pulls back the curtain and he shows Peter, James, and John, this is who my son is. I want you to see his glory. Look at verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Now, if this scene was not unusual enough, I mean, the scene was already unusual. It gets even more unique. All of a sudden, there appears Elijah with Moses, like the Elijah, the Moses of the Old Testament. And they are holding a conversation with Jesus. Now, as a child growing up, I was... These four boys, mine, that, that was me growing up. I'm sitting there in church and I'm like, man, I got so many questions. As a child growing up, when I would read this story, I'd hear it preached on, I had, I had so many questions. Like, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? How did they know? Like, did they have name tags? We don't know. But it does raise the question, will we recognize one in heaven? One another in heaven. And this verse seems to suggest Yes. This verse seems to suggest that we will recognize one another in heaven. Why Elijah and Moses? Why not King David? Why not Solomon? Why not Adam? Why not why, why Elijah and Moses? Well, both men are traditionally seen as the two greatest prophets in Israel's history. And they both experienced divine theophanies on a mountain. And perhaps Jesus is connecting that here. What did they talk about with Jesus, right? What, what did they talk about? Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us this. Luke tells us that they spoke of his departure, literally exodus. The word exodus is a Greek word, and that word departure in Luke is exodus. They spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Which is interesting. I wonder if they were asking him, like, hey, when are you coming back to heaven? <laughs> What was the purpose of their appearance? Like, why were they there? Why? We understand Jesus showing his glory, but why have Moses and Elijah appear? I am not sure. But I have to believe that at least in part, it was to testify to these disciples about the resurrection from the dead. I think in part, Jesus, God the Father, wanted to give a living testimony to them here is Moses. Here is Elijah. Two men who have, well, one man who has died. Another one was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. But two men who are presumed, for all intents and purposes, dead. And here they are before you. Here they are alive. There is a resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what do you say when you see your rabbi transfigured? What do you say when you see his clothes become as light 
and his face starts shining like the sun and he's holding a conversation with two dead prophets. What do you say? Apparently you offered to build an Airbnb. Three Airbnbs. Peter says, it is good that we are here. That is true. That is true. It is a good thing to be in the presence of glory. That's a good thing. But then he says, let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this is so funny to me. I love Mark's commentary on this. Look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, most scholars think that Mark's source, gospel, because remember, Mark is not one of the 12. So how did Mark know all this? Mark's source is probably Peter. So I can only imagine Peter retelling this story to Mark. You know, he's like, all right, we were on the mountain. And then his clothes became like white as light. And his face started shining. And, uh, and then all of a sudden there was Moses. And then there was Elijah. And, and, and then I offered to build them tents. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know what to say. I was terrified. Not just afraid. The Greek word for afraid is phobos. This word is ekphobos. Terrified. Terrified. The only other time this word is used, only used twice in the New Testament, the only other time it's used is in Hebrews 12, 21 with another man on top of a mountain in the glory of God. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Look at verse 7 to 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, no longer they saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So all of a sudden, there's a cloud. And the cloud overshadows them. That word overshadow means to cause a darkening or a covering. So in other words, like they're, um, you know, and this cloud may have been, I don't know if it was like a white cloud or a dark cloud. I, I, I don't know, but the cloud envelops them. And, and a voice comes out of the cloud. I mean, it's not the voice of Jesus. It's not the voice of Moses. It's not the voice of Elijah. It is the voice of God. I am so eager and terrified to know what the sound of God's voice is. We get to heaven. What does it sound like? God says, this is my beloved son. These are the same words spoken by the father at Jesus's baptism. God wanted these three disciples to know that this is not only my son, this is my beloved son. And God gives them a command, a very simple yet very difficult command. Listen to him. Moses had prophesied this back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Now, Matthew tells us that when the disciples heard this voice speak to them out of the cloud, they fell on their faces for they were terrified. But Jesus came to them and he touched them and he said, rise, have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes. And when they looked around, only Jesus was left. The father is gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And the only one left is Jesus. Now, there may be a symbolism there. I say may. There may be a symbolism here that they are no longer to look to Moses and Elijah. They are now to look to Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, <clears throat> he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. As they are walking down the mountain, Jesus charges them. That word charge there means literally command or ordered them. He ordered them 
to tell no one. He says, do not tell anyone what you have seen until, until the Son of Man, which is Jesus, has risen from the dead. Don't tell anyone about this. Can you imagine witnessing this and then not being able to tell anyone? You can tell the transfiguration wouldn't happen today because in our social media, we, we, we'd never make it. I got to post this, right? Like, that we'd never make it. Jesus says, you can't tell anyone about this until after I rise from the dead. And so, like, unlike many in the crowds who just could not keep their mouth shut, the disciples actually obeyed. They actually, wanted, like the first time I can think of when Jesus said, don't tell anybody, they actually didn't. They actually didn't tell anybody until after he rose from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves. Imagine the other disciples, what they thought. All this time you didn't tell us, like, you knew this. All the while, though, while they're walking down the mountain, they have this lingering question in their mind, this question that just keeps spinning in their mind. They're thinking, what is this rising from the dead that he keeps talking about? What is this? And what does that mean? Now, why are they? It's not that they have a problem believing in the resurrection of the dead. They just saw Moses and Elijah. They don't have a problem believing in the resurrection of the dead. They have a problem believing that the Messiah will rise from the dead. Why? Because rising from the dead means the Messiah must die. In other words, the disciples, they still don't have a framework for the Messiah dying. They still can't comprehend this notion that the Messiah must die and rise from the dead. And so they're still struggling with this. So, in other words, because they're struggling with this, that is why they ask the question they do. They ask a question. Look at verse 11 and 13. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how was it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So they asked this question because they don't understand the idea of the Messiah dying and rising from the dead. Now, what's the connection here? They asked the question, why do the scribes say that the first, that, that first Elijah must come? Now, first, why did the scribes say that? Why did this, is it true the scribes, the scribes did say that? Why do the scribes say that? The scribes say that because God prophesied in Malachi 4, 5. Here's, what, here's the prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So they know this prophecy. The scribes know this prophecy. But why do the disciples bring it up now? Why do they ask this question now? Because here's why. Here's the connection. In their mind, if Elijah is to come before the Messiah, before the Messiah, and if the Elijah to come is going to restore all things, then why does the Messiah need to die? Does everybody understand that? If, if Elijah is going to come before the Messiah, and when he comes, he will restore all things, then why would the Messiah need to die? And Jesus takes this as an opportunity to teach to the disciples. He says, listen, Elijah does come before the Messiah. And he does restore all things. Two different people testify that Elijah did come. And he came in John the Baptist. The first is the angel Gabriel. Remember what the angel Gabriel says to Zachariah and Elizabeth when he says that the child born to you is going to be John? Here's what he says. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of who? Of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to their children. The second one is Jesus. Jesus comes right out and says that the Elijah in Malachi 4 is John, John the Baptist. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Matthew eleven thirteen 13 to 14. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that the spirit of Elijah came. He already came in the spirit of John. And he does restore all things. But, but, that prophecy has to be reconciled with another prophecy. 
That prophecy has to be reconciled with another prophecy. What prophecy? Jesus asked them a question. He says, why then is there so much written in the Old Testament that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He says, you know this prophecy in Malachi, but then you also know prophecies like Isaiah 53. The sufferings. Why is there so much in the Old Testament that the Messiah will suffer and be treated with contempt? And so what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that John, he did come and restore all things, but not in the way you are thinking. Not in the way you are thinking. The people didn't receive him. They didn't receive John. They did to John whatever they pleased. We know that Herod imprisoned him and had John beheaded. And so Jesus is saying, look, you've got to put these two together, disciples, that John came and restores all things and the Messiah will be treated with contempt and suffer and die. And these two things go together. What Jesus is saying is that just as John was a forerunner to the life and ministry of Jesus, John was also a forerunner to the suffering and death of Jesus. Just as John was treated, so will Jesus be treated. That's Jesus' point here. We'll stop there with our exposition. Application of the text. I, I admit, I, um, this, I, I wrestled to get an application from this because it's such a unique event. It's like, when, you know, like, go be transfigured. Uh, like, <laughs> what, where do I get application from this? We always believe that the word of God has application. The word, even, in the, even in the genealogy, I taught a Friday night series on genealogies. We always believe the word of God has application. I have seven exhortations for us. Here they are. Number one, taste and see the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Taste and see the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes a perplexing statement in verse 1. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with what? Power. Now, why does Jesus make this statement? Why does he say this? Well, I have to think that he says this here. Because given the context, what have we been reading about? We've been reading about Jesus telling the crowds, that you must deny yourselves, take up your cross, and die daily. Right? You must follow me. Follow me to where? Follow me to suffering, rejection, and death. Now, if anybody heard those words, that seems like a failed mission, doesn't it? Like, that doesn't... This is a, an election year. If you're trying to start a campaign... Telling people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and die, and lose their life, that's, that's not a very successful campaign. That's not the best strategy. But Jesus assures them. He says, do not fear. You will not only see the kingdom of God, you will see it with power. When Jesus died, the movement didn't die. It didn't die. It actually expanded. You read the, the gospel, the, the book of Acts, 3,000, 5,000, to here we are 2,000 years later to millions. There are millions of Christians today. Jesus promised the disciples that they will witness the power of the kingdom of God through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, listen, I understand that you may taste death. You may taste death. In fact, if you're a Christian, you should taste death every day of your life. We must die daily. You will taste death every day of your life. But before you taste final death, you will see and experience the power of the resurrection. Over the past two weeks, we've been talking about this. The idea of, of denying self, taking up our cross, losing our life, losing this world. And that feels impossible, right? 
Sometimes, you know, they, when you read these and, and there's, there, there's two extremes when you read Mark 8 about the whole, you know, for anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. It, it can either um, be like a rubber ball or like a boulder. Rubber ball means like you read that and it's just, it, it, like it doesn't, it doesn't land. Yeah, 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 deny myself, take off the cross. I know, I know that. Yeah, yeah, where, where are we going for dinner? It just, doop. It just bounces right off of you. Doesn't, doesn't hit you, right? Doesn't, doesn't land on you the weight of those, right? That's one extreme. The other extreme is it can be like a boulder. Like it just crushes you, you know? And you're just like, I can't move. I can't do this. I can't live this life. And Jesus says, listen, when the kingdom of God breaks in on your life, we are given power. Power over sin. Power over death. Power over our flesh. Power over this world. Everything that he said in Mark 8 is empowered by the resurrection. You will see the kingdom of God come with power. Friend, you want to know that you're in Christ? Do you have power? Have you tasted and seen the power of the resurrection? Because if you're in Christ, you have it. You are not a slave to your sin. You are not a slave to your sin. You have power over your sin. Number two. When we pray and read His Word and sing praises and attend church, Jesus leads us to His glory. When we pray and read His Word and sing praises and attend church, Jesus leads us to His glory. Mark writes that Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. But Mark doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us why. He just says Jesus led them up a mountain to be by themselves. Luke actually tells us the reason why they went up there. Luke says that Jesus led them up the mountain to do what? To pray. Luke says they went up the mountain to pray. Little did they know that Jesus was leading them to much more than prayer. Now, when they get to the top of the mountain, Luke gives us another detail that Mark doesn't give us. Luke says that when they get to the top of the mountain, they were heavy with sleep. This wouldn't be the last time that the disciples were sleeping at a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, while Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping. And guys, remember, these are not just any disciples. This is the inner three. This is the mature ones. This is the spiritual ones. These are the, 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 the ones who like should be, you know, like Bartholomew's mom is like, why can't you be more like John? Imagine if the disciples had slept through this. You imagine Jesus standing there, shining in glory, his clothes looking like light, and all his glory is being displayed for everyone to see, and they're just, just snoozing away. Can you fathom it? They would have missed seeing the glory of God because they were heavy with sleep. Luke writes that it's only when they become fully awake that they see the glory of Jesus. Friends, when we pray, Jesus is never leading us to simply supplications and confession and thanksgiving. When we read his word, Jesus is never leading us to simply doctrine and knowledge and stories. When we sing songs, Jesus is never leading us to just emotions and tears and goosebumps. When we attend church, Jesus is never leading us to just sermons 
and fellowship and warm cinnamon rolls. Jesus is leading us to His glory. He desires to show us His glory. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it because you get a notification on your phone. Don't miss it because you can't resist video games at 2 a.m. Don't miss it because you have so much to get done. Don't miss it. He's leading you to his glory. Three. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image for one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with an unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 One of the primary questions surrounding the Mount of Transfiguration is this. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he do this? It's unlike any other event. It wasn't like, you know, he did miracles multiple times. He even fed the crowds multiple times. He taught multiple times. Most things Jesus did multiple times, but he only transfigured once. Why did he do it at all? Why did he, and why did he only give three disciples this vision, this scene? My only answer to this question is this. Jesus desired for these three disciples to see the fullness of the glory of God, even if but a brief moment. Now, why? Why did he want them to see the glory of God? Because when we see the glory of God, it's not just Jesus who's transformed. We are transformed. The glory of God changes us, transforms us. Now, how does that work? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, when one turns to the Lord, when we turn from looking at the glory of the world and all the glory that the world can offer us, and we turn from it and we look upon his face and we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's removed. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That word transformed, same word, it's transfigured. What Paul is saying is that when we turn to the Lord, the veil, what is the veil? The veil is a hardened heart. You know, you, sometimes like you, you, know, you come to the Word. You know how people can... There, there are many in, in every church where you can read the word over and over and over again. You can attend church year after year after year, and you're like, I don't, I don't see it. I, I, you, I, you keep talking about the glory of the Lord. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I, I don't see any glory. This veil is a hardened heart. It covers our eyes. We can't see it. But when we turn to the Lord, He removes the veil. And with an unveiled face, we see His face, His glory. We see the risen Savior and His glory transforms us, changes us. It makes us a new creation. This transformation should be radical. Like it, it, it's like people who know you should say, look, you, you're like a different person. Someone should not know you like in, in, in like 10 years, like, look, like who you were 10 years ago and today, like it's like the same. I don't really see a difference. No. You see the glory of God and it changes you. You look different. You sound different. You value different. You're just different. It transforms you. Imagine somebody looking at a caterpillar and saying, what a beautiful butterfly. 
That's not a butterfly. Yeah, it is. No. I, I can see it's not. It looks different. Jesus' transformation transformed the disciples. Now, you may be wondering, well, look, Matt, I can't march up this mountain. You know, I would love to see the glory of God and be transformed like this, but I can't march up this mountain the way Peter, James, and John did. Um, well, that's not exactly true. We still have a mountain to march up. Our Mount of Transfiguration is now experienced on our knees in the prayer closet. With our ears attentive in the church chair. Through our voices raised in corporate singing. And the contemplative moments out in nature. In the tears of contrition and repentance. And in the joy of Christian fellowship and laughter. These are our mounts of transfiguration. Because in all of these, we behold the glory of the Lord. And he transforms us. Changes us. Don't think for one second that these three men were the same after seeing this. They were not the same. And neither are we. Neither are we. We're different. Four. Our desire may be to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on others' account. Philippians 1, 23-24. Our desire may be to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on others' account. You have to love Peter, right? Peter gets an A for passion. And he gets a D for thinking before he speaks. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Not only good that we are here, it is good that we stay here. Let us make three tents. I will make one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's so funny to me. Here is Jesus displaying the glory of God he hardly needs Peter to make him a tent. He's like, Peter, I spoke this whole world into existence. And Moses and Elijah, their home is in heaven. I can imagine Moses and Elijah, like, like, why would we come back to this earth? Like, why would I want to live on this mountain? I'm, I'm in heaven. That's my home now. We're not quite sure what Peter was thinking. He wasn't thinking. He said he didn't know what to say. We don't know why did he offer to build three tents. Now, I don't know, but my best guess, my best guess is that Peter wanted to stay there. He wanted to stay there with Jesus and these two men and the disciples. He didn't want this moment to end. He didn't want it to end. You see, we all like mountaintop experiences, don't we? We all love the mountaintop experience, but inevitably we have to come down to the valley. We have to come down to the valley. The only mountaintop that we will never leave is Mount Zion, and we are not there yet. Peter's words make me think of Paul's words in Philippians 1, where Paul's in jail and he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I want to be with Jesus in heaven, for that is far better, but it is more necessary on your account that I stay here in the flesh. When we experience the mountaintop, we want to stay there. But listen, brothers and sisters, there's work for us to do. There was work for Jesus to do. Jesus did not come to reveal his glory through a mountain. He came to reveal his glory through a cross. Jesus must come down this mountain so that he can climb another mountain called Calvary. The same is true of you and me. You see, we all want heaven on earth, don't we? 
We all would love to have heaven on earth. We all want the glory of heaven now, now, here on earth. But listen, we have a hill to die on first. A hill with our name on it. Five. The glory of God should cause us to tremble with fear. The glory of God should cause us to tremble with fear. When Mark recounts this story, how would we expect the disciples to describe this event? Like when, when uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, or Peter is recounting this, how would we expect them to recount this? What words, what adjectives would we expect them to use? Maybe awesome, amazing, astounding, breathtaking, magnificent, spectacular, miraculous. How about terrifying? How about terrifying? They were terrified at the glory of God. God spoke to them out of the cloud and they fell on their faces in fear. You see, one of the greatest disservices in the church today, the, the global church, one of the greatest disservices in the church today is that God has been domesticated. Domesticated. We have forgotten that our God is a consuming fire. When God descended on Mount Sinai, the people in the camp, they physically trembled. Ezra said that then all who trembled at the words of God of, of Israel, the psalmist writes, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. When Daniel was given a vision a hand touched him and set him trembling on his hands and knees. Paul exhorts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The glory of God should cause us to tremble with fear. Tremble. In other words, the very thought of bringing my sin into his presence should cause me to tremble with fear. Six, God Almighty has told us who to listen to. God Almighty has told us who to listen to. You know, we, we all have voices in our head. Everybody has voices in their head. We have dozens of voices in our head. The primary voice that everybody listens to, this is true for everybody in this room, the primary voice that everybody listens to. Anybody know who it is? That's exactly right. Our own. The most played song in our head is the soundtrack of our own voice. But we also have other voices. Our parents have a voice in our head. You realize this when you get older, you're like, you hear your mom talking, you hear your dad talking in your head, right? Tuck that shirt in. Don't smack your food. Our teachers have a voice, our friends, our boss, authors, movie stars, athletes, podcasters, the president, the news outlets, Satan himself. We all have dozens of voices in our head. And here's the problem. There's only so much landscape in our mind. And all these voices are trying to take their flag and claim their plot of land. Claim their territory. But listen to me. God Almighty has told us who to listen to. God Almighty has spoken to us. He still speaks to us. And he is still today telling us, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, all these other voices, they would seek to control what we think, what we feel, what we believe, what we value. But God has told us, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. To him. Seven, last point. It is only when we embrace resurrection that we are willing to embrace death. It is only when we embrace resurrection that we are willing to embrace death. 
The interaction between Jesus and the disciples as they're coming down the mountain tells us that they still didn't understand the suffering and rejection and death of the Messiah. They're confused because they know that Elijah's coming, and when Elijah comes, he's going to restore all things. But if he restores all things, how is it that the Messiah is going to be killed? How is that possible? And Jesus points out their misunderstanding. Yes, the scriptures testify that the Messiah will come, uh, that, and that Elijah will come and restore all things. But the scriptures also testify that the Messiah will suffer. Now, why do the disciples have a problem with this? They have a problem with it because they are only thinking in earthly terms. They're, they're only, their conception of the Messiah is only an earthly conception of the Messiah. And when you're only thinking in earthly terms, you have no framework for suffering. Do you know why the majority of the church, myself included, does not have much of a framework for suffering? Because we're so earthly-minded. When we are earthly-minded, we don't, do not have a framework for suffering. When Christians only think in earthly terms, we have no framework for denying ourselves, taking up our cross, dying daily, and losing our life. It is only, only when we think in eternal terms, eternal terms, when we embrace the fact that I will rise from the dead. It's only when I embrace that reality, I live in that reality, that I now have a framework for suffering. I now have a framework for suffering and death. It means that no matter what happens to me in this life, let the world disown me. Let my parents disown me. Let my spouse disown me. Let my children disown me. Let the world leave me. I will rise from the dead. I will be with my Savior when I die. It is only when we embrace resurrection that we freely are willing to lose our life. Let's pray.